Welcome back to Operation Opera. Elise and I had a nice chat with Brian Benner, who is a Vienna-based singer-songwriter. We talked all about the old and the new and how opera can play a role in modern media, all kinds of fun things. Enjoy. Brian and I met when I pretty much had just moved out to Austria when I first got to Vienna, and he started a Shakespeare club. And he showed up to Shakespeare Club, where we were going to be doing a reading of Macbeth, wearing a kilt. And I was like, ah, we are going to be friends. (laughs) I'm definitely going to be friends with. So, and then we, uh, I went to a concert of Brian's where he was performing uh, a singer-songwriter with um, a group. These these are guys that you've worked with for a long time. Is that right, Brian? Um, I can't remember which was the first first concert you went to. do you remember which band it was? It was the Earl Kings, and I saw you at the Mozart Concert House. Ah, okay, yes. Yeah, uh, that's the that's the first band that I started in uh, in Vienna. Yeah, and yeah. we've been working together for about almost five years now. That's awesome. Great. Yeah, and I loved, oh my gosh, yeah, I loved this combination of you know the songs of Schubert with a it's I wouldn't call it an updating, it's more like an expansion of what is already there. Nice, nicely said. Um, I I love this. Um, yeah. This is making me think of Stephen P. Brown and like the need for more live concerts and yeah. for um, you know those of us who wish we had more opportunities to just create them for ourselves. And the thing is, we I think sometimes think that we can only perform when someone else is validating us and putting us out there, you know, under the auspices of some other some opera house or some whatever it could be. But this is this takes a lot of courage and is awesome, and I love it, and I want to know more about it. Well, I agree. It takes a lot of courage in the sense that um, rarely does it feel like there's a sort of a beaten path to follow in any way. You know, you're kind of uh, sort of bushwhacking your way through you're it from pioneer. the very beginning. Yeah, to put it like romantically. Um, but... <laughs> Trailblazer. I don't know, man. But... There's not a whole lot that's really romantic about being a pioneer. I don't know. But yeah, true, the reality <laughs> of it, certainly. But um, the advantages of it, though, are sort of why, I mean, I, it's true, like, I guess maybe not everybody has the, whatever, the, the vision or the, or the courage to sort of step away and do their own thing, but I just feel like the advantages of it, I feel so, so spoiled by it that I can't even imagine going back to the other situation. Like, I mean, I get to be my own boss all the time, and the fact that there's a lot of insecurity involved and there's a lot of... Um, you know, there's less security involved anyway. To me, it just seems like a small, small price to pay for the fact that I mean, I get to just make, I get to make all my own like creative decisions, and that to me is worth. I don't. It doesn't take any courage. It just seems like a no-brainer. But that's just the way I'm built, I guess. No, that's amazing, and we need more people like you. It's also reminding me of our conversation, Rachel, with Kathy Kelly about sort of the relevance, and you know, when you're an artist, able to sort of make things now and not just regurgitate what has been done for years and years, that is the most relevant it can be, right? And I think it does take courage. I think that's the right word for it. Um, but it's so it's so needed, something fresh. Absolutely. You know? Well, this was what really made me want to talk with Brian, because as we were chatting, like we grabbed coffee the other day and, well, a couple months ago, now, but um, and was talking about taking off the shackles of expectation, like when it comes to being in a conservatory setting and what that's like. So I thought we could talk a little bit about what that's like, you know, in and maybe share a few stories about our, you know, our shared experiences. Like, I mean, I know for myself, like when I was interpreting, I was getting ready for my senior recital and I had to do these Bach pieces. And I remember getting them ready and like, feeling totally overwhelmed because there was so much that had to be done and I thought oh it's early music it's easy (laughs) and Mm -hmm. um yeah but you know there's a certain beauty in that right in in being able to interpret something so specifically but it's also uh for anyone who has a really creative mind it can feel kind of limiting 
Sure, I think there's a, there's a balance between um, um, feeding the creative mind and in the sense of uh, like giving you all the information. Like it's great to learn how you're quote unquote supposed to sing that kind of music. It's great to have the context and to have the uh, the training and the the, the um, yeah the foundation, the education and everything. Um, but the problem is is that in the pursuit of that knowledge, we often lose sight of the fact that. The, the accumulation and the digestion of that knowledge, knowledge is ultimately supposed to give birth to something new. It's like, it's, you know, it's like how the idea of making a bunch of money isn't to sit on a fat bank account. The idea of making a bunch of money is to then spend all that money and do something great with it. So the idea of accruing a bunch of um, knowledge and information in a conservatory, I mean, I think the, the stricter, the more rigid the conservatory experience you can survive, the better, so long as when you come through the other side of it, you realize or you have a moment of revelation where you know that that knowledge that you've accumulated is intended to help you find a new voice. But it's so easy to get lost in all those other, all those other old uh, great voices, which can be so overpowering. Yeah. I wisdom. I love that. <laughs> I love what you just said. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the, par the um, paradox of the conservatory experience is that, like, I mean, I, I think the structure is amazing. Like, learning how to sing Schubert from Angelika Kirchlager, one of the greatest Austrian mm -hmm. uh, lead singers of our day, um, and, you know, having her, or Birgit Steinberger, who is a lot less nice in the way that she teaches, is a very, very strict and, like, super detailed-oriented, to the point where, I mean, I walked out of their classes on multiple occasions because I felt like my creativity was being so... Like, stifled. Yes, it stifled. At the same time, though, that um, gave me such a um, uh, such a deep understanding of the the path that the, those songs that repertoire has gone through to arrive at today. Which I feel like when I do a new interpretation of something, I hugely benefit from knowing what everybody expects because the shackles of expectation, as you called them. Um, sure, we want to work at freeing ourselves with them, but I think they first have to be understood before you can be free of them. That's why I, mean, I think being put in, yeah. being put, you, you can't you can't play with the boxes that genres put us in if you're not aware of the boxes of what they mean, right. where they start and stop, and everything. So I completely but, agree. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit to something that you said about walking out of classes. Uh, this is something that I think is really important. Uh, you know, we hope that, you know, some of our audiences, young singers that are in conservatories or in college right now that are sort of figuring out what does it mean to be your own artist and what does it mean to also, you know, be a true interpreter of, of what's written, what's actually on the page. And I feel like that balance of figuring out, okay, what is going to serve me, what is going to serve the art form, really is, is, is a difficult thing to know, especially when you're 19 years old. But to know that, yeah, if, if something that is being said or being discussed within a classroom setting is going to, you know, inhibit you from actually being creative, it is important to step away. And that doesn't mean that you, you know, you throw it away. It just means like sometimes, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave. And I think that that's, that's a really, really valid thing. Like sure. I, yeah, I, th I think though there's also um, when you sign up to be a part of an institution, when you take the plunge and decide, okay, I'm going to open myself up to this knowledge. I, I think there's there's little to be gained from um, like actively walking away from it or like making that like externalizing that. I think that's an inner process that should happen. Like you, in my opinion, I think you should stay in the class. Should continue to listen, and you should make you should build clear uh, delineations in your own mind about which information you're interested in taking on board, and which information is not serving you. Just like when when you go to a voice teacher that you feel like they're offering you advice um, that's not uh, consistent with the way you want to sing. Um, you know, rarely is it appropriate to walk out. You just you finish the lesson, right. and you think, okay, I'm See gonna ya. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to file that I'm going to file that away in you know the folder of stuff that's interesting but not necessarily for me. Oh yeah, interesting but not important. That's something I say a lot. You know, what is interesting yeah, exactly. but not important? Yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot of stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um but uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's 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 um I think like artistic conviction and everything is super important, but that's sort of the again the paradox of the conservatory experience is that you're in the process of under of learning and what your own 
you know, artistic conviction is. For me, it wasn't really until the end of my time in conservatory where I felt like it was a where I felt like I had the the security, or I, I felt like I had I'd taken enough steps into myself to be able to say this isn't for me. Because really, when you walk into it, you should be open as open as possible. The more dilated you are, you know, the more chance you have of coming across really inspiring, interesting stuff. So if you're too like narrow in your convictions at the beginning of an education, you can also run the risk of missing out on a lot of stuff because you're close to it. May I, uh, I, this is great. I'm, I'm so glad we're talking to you, Brian. This is awesome. <laughs> um, so, uh, I just want to say quickly this whole, this whole journey. I love, love, love what you said about, you know, we get our education as a springboard to then using our own strengths and our own creativity to make something new of it and not mm. just to, as the word I used before was regurgitate sort of, you know, the same thing that artists did a hundred years ago or whatever, which, you know, we're opera singers. So this is like par for the course. It's really actually not that strange. It's what most people leave conservatory in order to do. Um, But Rachel, on the other hand, came out of conservatory and made a folk album. That was the first thing that she recorded was like, Oh, Susanna (laughs) and um, the ants go marching um, various, Wait, wait, wait. No, that's what we're doing now. You mean like my original one? Like the what, Twisted Folk? Like the album that I did a while ago? Mm, oh, no, but this is a good point. History repeats itself. Yes, well, <laughs> this is... Think qu- about that. Yeah, I suppose so. No, my... Yeah, well, okay. So, yeah, so Rachel comes Sorry, out of this ultra-refined <laughs> <laughs> education, and she's like, let's go back to our roots, people. Let, let's keep it real. <laughs> oh, yeah, you mean like right now, like coming out yeah. of going to the yeah, musical but, yeah. but no, mm-hmm. but I love it that you brought it up that that actually happened before too because I had forgotten about that but um what I would love to and you please pipe pipe in um Rachel but what I would love to hear Brian is sort of your journey like how did you end up in Vienna and Mm -hmm. at the uh, how like I just want to hear more about this journey because the wisdom that you um why don't I, why did I want to say the word spewed? That's like a, such a terrible word, but that's what came to my mind. Anyway, the wisdom that you just like, it's coming out of you like a fountain right now. Spewing, you know? Just spewing it left and right. Yeah, yeah. No, but in a good way. I'm like um, a, but, I'm like a high pressured fountain of wisdom. But that, like a yeah, but kettle, that doesn't you know? come from, that doesn't come from a boring journey. I don't think it seems. I like, have not had a boring journey. Right, Absolutely not. Out. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you the, the relatively short version. Please, please do. Um, so I was born in Orlando, Florida, um, near Disney World. Uh, Disney World was more or less the extent of my cultural understanding of music and theater for the first part of my life. Um, not a bad start, actually. Think about it. The longer I, the longer I go through my career, the more I realize how thankful I am actually for growing up listening to the masterful unnamed composers who were writing for Disney. No, it's um, really true. There was so back many. when I was a kid, the unsung heroes of that time. So anyway, I was uh, already born in a magical place. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Epcot Center had that many lands or what's it called? The... Yeah, yeah. And the, the, I can't remember if it's Epcot, but it's a small world after all, you mean? I mean, oh, right? no, don't you I... just cry a little bit when you go through? By the end, it's because you've heard it too many times. But in the beginning, it's like, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's like at first, at first it's touching and then it's torture. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's how I feel about most operas when I go to. Yeah. Too. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, I was born in Orlando, Florida, and um, I was um, actually originally in Catholic schools um, and was uh, expressing uh, way too much uh, creativity to fit into that system. Uh, so I was quickly taken out of uh, Catholic school and put into a an art school, which sort of changed my life. It was run by this uh, older Jewish couple who had a a strong belief in helping educate kids through music and theater. So every year, it's called the New School of Orlando. So every year, we put on a big musical production, like a musical review, where everybody would sing different things, and a Shakespeare play. Um, So the reason I started Shakespeare Club, Rachel, was a play I came into contact with when I was in the was a huge milestone in my, like, starting to understand the magic of the theater and the spoken word and all mm. of that stuff. So I got, I got really into Shakespeare. And my mom, who was always, both my parents, actually always big supporters of, of the arts and particularly the arts in their son, uh, found the Orlando Shakespeare Festival, which I joined. 
so that got me really into um, into Shakespeare and theater and all of that stuff. And of course, using my voice, and eventually, somebody said you maybe should be interested in taking voice lessons. That that all developed, and I ended up quitting the sports teams that I was. I'll never forget going to my lacrosse teacher um, with like it's like I was horrible at lacrosse. Right, I've been playing for several seasons and was always on the bench. Well, really terrible. It is the remember, it is an art school, right? I mean, and I remember yeah. and I remember no, this was this was outside of school. And I remember oh. going to going up to my coach with like, just with just full of pride and saying like, I'm quitting the lacrosse team. I will be taking voice lessons and tap dancing lessons from now on. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I went, I joined a music academy and started studying uh, different stuff. And then uh, the musical theater teacher that I had got a, accepted to, um, or was cast in some production of Miss Saigon in Japan. She left and they replaced her with an opera singer. And the opera singer came and was, um, I'd never I'd never had any contact with opera ever in my life. And she heard me sing a little bit and she said, you know, if you're interested, uh, I think you could try singing some opera. So I got into that and that sort of, I caught the bug um, for singing loud, as it were. And then um, I found out about this performing arts boarding school called Idlewild Arts Academy, which is out in California. Yeah, Idlewild, uh, sure. Yeah, and that's, so that's where I ended up going to high school. And I was there where? for four years. Where in that's California? In Southern California. That's just up the canyon, actually, in L.A., I think. Yeah. Idlewild, yeah. Uh, no, it's actually it's about, it's about no, no, it's about two hours um, east of Los Angeles, up in the mountains of above Palm Springs, Palm Desert. Oh, okay, all right. I was, oh, I was thinking of the wrong canyon or something. Okay, cool. Idlewild. Okay, nice. It's hot um, there. Holy cow. Yeah, but this is a mile. This is a mile up in the mountains, so we're okay. talking snow, so much snow, nicer. and all four seasons and everything. No, it was great, nice. and it was. Everybody had a different major, so either you're either a creative writing major or a theater major or a music major, or whatever. You do all your academics until one o'clock, have lunch, and then do all your arts classes classes in the afternoon. Um, and that was Ooh. where I started playing. Uh, all singers had to take piano lessons. Somehow I talked them into giving me guitar lessons, and that sort of developed into a, um, a big love for uh, classical guitar. I got really into that, and um, obviously as a singer, I started uh, using classical guitar primarily as a way of accompanying myself as a singer, which was really began my whole journey as a songwriter and yeah and, and, that. and then I saw a sort of a footnote in the whole story I usually leave this out in most interviews but I'll be open and with you guys because I think it's the older I get the more I realize what a significant part of the journey was um, when I was 17 um, my dad took me down to Costa Rica um, for 10 days where we participated in an ayahuasca ceremony mm. where, I, uh, where I drank ayahuasca tea for uh, five days out of a 10-day ceremony uh, that was a sort of a music-based ceremony, which had um, a huge, huge effect on me in terms of um, opening up my, I don't know, inner creativity and connectivity towards music and, and rhythm and, and melody. I won't tell you the whole story, but suffice to say, when I came back, I was just absolutely full of... Um, music and ideas and I finally found an outlet for it, started writing songs and um, allowing the classical education that I was receiving to inspire new music. I think it's important in the sense that um, I didn't only study classical music and then all of a sudden start making my own music, but, ra yeah. but rather I've been engaging in creative productivity since the beginning and classical music has been sort of my biggest inspiration that continues to accompany me, accompany my creative process, I would say. There okay, is, two questions. Sorry, go ahead. Oh. No, you go first. Will you remember? Uh, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember if you want to go. Oh, but then it'll go off on that thing, so you go. Okay, okay. Um, so two questions. Um, the first one is uh, the tea that you drank. Was that some kind of... Uh, hallucinogenic? Like hallucinogenic? <laughs> Yeah. Yes, ayahuasca tea is the third most powerful hallucinogenic known t to man. It has a, a high percentage of DMT, which is the active uh, psychoactive ingredient in it. Ah, okay, that's what I figured, but I just wasn't sure. I'm not, I wasn't familiar with that. Yes, ma'am. And, and then the second um, question I have is, you you sort of just touched on the fact that it wasn't like you picked up a guitar and that day that afternoon started writing songs or whatever. But like, what what's what was the timeline with that? Like, you convinced them instead of keyboard, let me learn guitar. You started learning guitar, and then like, 
how much after that was it that you actually started writing songs? Did it take you a while, or did it was it something no, that happened? pretty much pretty much immediately. I mean, I think I was oh. drawn. I think I was drawn to the guitar because I subconsciously needed something that was going to be the vehicle for all the stuff that I felt mm-hmm. that was inside me already. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as soon as I was able to keep the rhythm on a couple chords in a row, I started writing songs. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I had. Like a, just, I, it was. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just said, yeah. I don't. I, don't, I can't really explain it. That's just how it was. Yeah, I had a. I had an interesting experience about a year and a half ago. I bought a ukulele, and I had never played. I mean, I had picked up a guitar a little bit here and there, um, but I wanted to learn jazz chords. And my friend in New York, who's actually a jazz trombonist, he said, um, you know, don't learn guitar because it's there are a lot of really mediocre jazz guitarists out there, but if you pick up the ukulele, you can actually be decent at it. <laughs> so I was like, okay, um, just cause yeah, jazz guitar is yeah, complicated. It's hard anyway. But I, I experienced for the first time once I picked up the ukulele that I could be an ensemble, just me, you know, and I, it, that mm. was kind of a revelation for me, even though I do play the piano. Um, and yeah. I have played for myself here and there, you know, at, at parties or family functions or whatever, but it's not really something as a classical musician that you grew up doing, like being an ensemble. And so you're always sort of beholden to, you know, with yeah. whether it's art song or opera or whatever, you always have to have the accompaniment there with you in another, you know what I mean? And then do rehearsals to get that together. And when it's, totally. when it's, when you're the one providing the accompaniment, then it just becomes very cohesive, you know, and sort of that impulse that you have, you know, to strum in a certain way or to sing in a certain way and to shape the phrase in a certain way, all just sort of comes together very seamlessly. And that to me was very liberating because it had always been sort of, like you were saying earlier, you are your own boss and you decide what you want to present, what you want to, you know. Totally, yeah. And I mean, the next the next time you pick up the ukulele, maybe drink a cup of ayahuasca tea and see what happens. <laughs> hey, can I get it here in the States or do I have to go to where was Costa Rica. I think, Costa Rica. I think it's, it's, it's technically illegal, but there's a, a lot of places that are protected. There's a lot of, there's a lot of places that do it because it's protected by sort of freedom of religion, because there's a religion also called the Church of Santo Daime from Brazil that also has a number of branches in America, and it's and it's an integral part of their religion that they drink ayahuasca tea. Uh-huh. So if you're interested in finding it, definitely. I mean, I was mostly joking. Uh, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't do it just like at home by, know, by yourself with your ukulele. Is Although, I mean, I'd call, it gui- I'd call it guidance, maybe not supervision necessarily. Okay. But anyway, yeah, yeah, sorry, that was just a joke. Should I finish it? I'll make it short. Should I finish my, my journey of the, yeah. different place, the different place? Anyway, so I was in California, right? Finished going to school there. And then I thought that I would like to continue um, studying uh, singing, but I was not interested in staying in the United States. I, I um, had a sort of wanderlust and wanted to see more of the world, but also wasn't ready necessarily to learn a new language. So I applied to schools of music in um, the United Kingdom and ended up going to study in, at the Royal Scottish Conservatory in Glasgow for four years. Much also to why my, you have a kilt. Sorry, go on. Yes, precisely. Much <laughs> to my surprise, upon arrival, I learned that there was quite a language barrier to get through. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. But, but that was, it was worth the trouble. Um, yeah, I was there for four years, and in that time, discovered um, Scottish, uh, Irish, so Celtic folk music, which became a big influence on me. At the same time, I had a wonderful um, voice teacher who was a, an organ scholar from Oxford, who then turned into a tenor and um, was a he's a sort of a scientific vocal pedagogue, teaching like using spectrographs to 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 explain the formants in the male passaggio and stuff like that. It got really, mm-hmm. So I got very lucky to meet some very, very special, unique people. Um, but four years in Glasgow was enough for my poor little Floridian heart. Um, in terms a little of how, tired of the, the cold rain, huh? Oh, my God, I could not, I could not handle it. Um, and so and I fell in love with an Italian girl, and I moved to Bologna, to Italy. And I was in Italy studying privately with a tenor, and working as a street performer um, for from 2010 to 2011. Um, and then I decided Italy, however fun it is there, is not a great place to get a career started. Mm. Um, Especially so, at that time. 
Yeah. Ten yeah. years before, it would have been a different story, but yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but it was even even the the conservatory there and other stuff were having a hard time supporting their their singers, let alone someone from the outside. So. I just someone someone invited me for a vocal workshop to Vienna, and I fell in love with the city and met the head of the voice department at the conservatorium. Um, and they said uh, that there'd be a place for me if I auditioned, so I did. Uh, and that was in 2011. And I did my uh, my master's degree in solo gesang, which is sort of everything opera, leader, and oratorio. Ended up doing that for three years. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. And in the meantime, uh, started the the three bands that I make my living with now. So you've got Errol King, and then what are the other two bands? Yeah, the Errol Kings is the one I've been doing for the longest. That's um, the Schubert Ensemble, although really it's a leader ensemble. We just premiered our first um, uh, Dichterliebe, so we cool. have ventured into Schumann. We're hoping to do some, um, we're actually we're definitely doing um, some uh, Wolf leader for the Hugo Wolf Academy next mm. year. And um, in 2020, we'll do some Beethoven as well for the big Beethoven year. Um, so, yeah, we're a leader band. Um, cool. And uh, the, the next band is called uh, Die Wandervögel. And we play Austrian, German, and Yiddish folk songs from the last 400 years or so in the tradition of Zupfgeigenhansel, if, if you know who those guys are. No. Sort of a, a folk music um, revival that happened in Germany in the 70s and 80s. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And um, how did you discover them? And yeah, talk more about that. I had uh, a um, pronunciation teacher named Eva at the conservatorium, and I sort of she got to know me a little bit, and she said, "Hey, check out this this band. I think you would really like them." Um, and I did, and I was absolutely crazy about it. But my my German wasn't good enough to be able to sing it on my own. So I just kind of listened to it a lot, learned a few of the songs, but never performed any of it. And then I um, was playing a concert somewhere, and the guys that played after me was a, a duo of two guys, a violin player and a guitarist, who both sang. And they sang in uh, Austrian dialect their own songs that they wrote. And it was the first time that I'd first time I'd seen Austrian singer-songwriters really embracing their own roots, making fun of their own roots, but doing it, you know, in their own in their own dialect in a very cool, authentic way. And I approached them after the concert and asked if they'd be interested in looking at some of these songs with me. And that was, I think, three years ago. And since then, we've literally tra traveled the world together, playing these, playing this repertoire that seems to have been forgotten. Um, we're cool. a, we're part of a program called the New Austrian Sound of Music, um, which is run by the Ministry of Austrian Ministry of Foreign uh, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Culture, and stuff. And Ooh. they have. Uh, they sort of help fund us to go play in countries outside of Austria to sort of show the world what kind of music is going on in Austria at the moment. So we're, we're actually flying to Greece next week. Lovely. Mm. Well, so how, how is being an independent artist in Vienna? Like you've been, you've been in Vienna now for what, five, five, six years and seven, seven years. Okay. How livable is it? How, how, how has it been for you? It's been amazing. I mean, I um, I have I have I think a very important um, talent for which is uh, not everybody not not everybody has, and that talent has nothing to do with music or anything else. The talent is a very uh, high threshold for financial insecurity. <laughs> that is a talent. And as a musician, uh, it's a really and, important one. <laughs> yeah, particularly when you've, you know, watched your guitar case fill up with 400 euros um, on the street, you know, on a good day, you realize that so long as you have your voice and your ability to play, rock bottom doesn't look so bad. Hmm. Uh, and that, that gave me a lot of, a lot of confidence in terms of um, feeling like I could dedicate myself to this lifestyle and this career without needing to look back or more importantly without needing to pull the rug out from underneath myself by siphoning off energy to create a plan b mm -hmm. how how generous would you say then i mean 400 euros inside of your car case in one day sounds pretty great um how generous in general would you say audiences are in vienna in in which context on the street in the or sense, like 
yeah, sure. Like their receptivity about, you know, with how you play or the music in general or, and in the concert house, like when I've been, and I've been to the concert house, like, or, you know, different, different places, I've just noticed that they just keep clapping. Everyone just claps for a really long time. And it's just so different than it is here in America. Huh. Um, I don't know. Like, what, yeah. Well, so. I, I, I don't have much of a frame of reference. I mean, I've been, I've literally my entire adult career has been abroad. I don't have anything in America to compare it to. I would say the Viennese are a discerning public, certainly. They're, so, yeah. the Vienna is saturated with music of a very high quality. So, you, you know, you either have to be doing something legit or you'll get called out for it. Not to, not to say that there are plenty of people who, like, make a career based on other stuff. But for the most part, particularly if you've got one foot in classical music, you know, you can either you can either cut it or you can't in terms of you can either sing or you can't or you can play violin or you can't. And if you can't, there's lots of other people that really can really well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and uh, but on so on the street for busking and everything, it's my probably my least favorite city in the world to play in. Mm. Uh, the Viennese just enjoy their peace and quiet, and they just don't have a lot of room for getting rowdy on the street and playing and mm. you know creating the sort of festive environment that helps you make the most money when you're playing on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've actually stopped doing that. I haven't played on the street in Vienna in years. Um, but what they do have to compensate for that is a this Freie Spendekultur, so concerts based on donations as opposed to selling tickets. And I mean, when I when we get it in our heads to put on a to put on a show with any of my bands, um, very rarely do we sell tickets. We just put out put out the hat or the basket or whatever, and encourage people to to give or donate whatever feels appropriate, to how much they've enjoyed the music. And for the audiences that tend to come to my shows, not like a bunch of super rich people, but people who really value the music and are happy to give, you know, 20, 25 euros, um, which is what they would have paid for a ticket. Absolutely. So in, that, in that sense, I find them very generous. Uh, I find them very loyal. There's a lot of people who are at every concert. I don't know if that says anything about Vienna or about the kind of music we're making or or what, maybe both. Um, but in, but I've, I've very much found my audience here. Um, that's probably the best answer I could give. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. So, oh, no, no, ahead, no, 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 please. Uh, I just want to know what the third band is. We haven't gotten there yet. Um, the third band is Brian Benner and the Pool Boys. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm not sorry. I shouldn't laugh. More. Tell me more. <laughs> Brian Benner and the Pool Boys is a trio. Uh, that I started to play my own songs. Um, so I play guitar and sing. Uh, I'm mean, a trumpet player who also sings harmonies with me uh, and uh, a double bass player. And so, yeah, a bit of a, I mean, they both come from classical and jazz backgrounds. And so it mm-hmm. has a little, bit, a little bit of a flavor of a jazz trio to it, but it's really based around my own compositions. Cool. Yeah, something I imagine that's nice about being a singer and also a guitarist is that when you do ensemble work with other musicians there's a certain level of validity that you're automatically given because you are a musician and not just quote unquote a singer now obviously that's a loaded sort of statement because sure. you know, at, a, at a certain level right musicians regardless of what your instrument is whether it's voice or something that you know a button you press um or strum uh, you are a musician but i think I think, especially in the early days of sort of being established or becoming established, that that definitely probably plays a part in it because you've done your homework in various areas. Would you say that? Does that sound? Well, I think that there are there are musicians, there are singers, and there are singers who are musicians, and not all of them necessarily play an instrument. Sure. You know, it's like, sort of like a, it's like a mindset. And that's taken me a long time to understand. I used to get super offended at the idea that because I was a singer, I wasn't a musician. Mm-hmm. Although this, this, this distinction, though it's primarily, you know, uh, what's the word, linguistic or vernacular or whatever. Semantics. It's, it, it's semantics, yeah. It, it has, though, a certain amount of uh, meaning behind it on purpose. Yeah, I got offended and, just now when Rachel said it, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. During the poop. Like, I, Sorry. I, <laughs> I, I understand that completely, and I remember feeling that myself. Um, but i got to be completely honest, you know, I mean, so I was married to a soprano, 
and in the time that we were together, our group of uh, friends and colleagues were 98% singers and being mostly in the singer community and hanging out with singers and stuff like that. She and I are no longer together, and for the past three years, I've been together with a pianist. And now I would say 98% of our friends are um, chamber musicians or orchestra musicians. It's a different uh, or, crowd. Soloists. <laughs> and um, the way that those people talk differently, those two different groups, the way that those people talk, um, interact, and experience music is significantly different. Yeah. Is it a um, question of ego? No, no. I think egos okay. are just as just as big on both sides of the aisle for sure. <laughs> without a without a doubt. Okay. No, 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 no. It's more about priorities. It's more about like I mean, basically the, the thing that separates singers from musicians is uh, is language. So yeah, so uh, instrumentalists. I won't call them musicians. In, people who play instruments um, spend most of their time trying to figure out how to communicate a clear um, uh, emotion or idea to an audience without using language. Um, whereas we have the, so singers have the exact opposite challenge of trying to, um, you know, through the vehicle of language and storytelling, um, transcend the language to allow an audience to have a higher experience of, of whatever that is. And uh, that, just means you have two very, very different goals when you walk out onto the stage. Sure, there's 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 similarities to them and and everything, but I feel like that's a big part of where where the where the divide is. And I find myself often frustrated talking to a musician, even to my girlfriend. She and I argue about it all the time because she she believes in the power of pure music, like pure truth, uh, untainted by the contextual limits of language whereas i don't know i'm much i'm much more interested in exploring the sort of earthbound uh humanity that exists in the way we express ourselves through language mm -hmm. uh, and there's uh, yeah there's just there's just two two ways to get two ways to get to heaven i mean nobody's nobody's you know it's, <laughs> it's we can talk about when we get there yeah it's interesting when i so i play the cello and I started playing cello in sixth grade when they said pick an instrument and I said violin and my mom's like, everybody plays the violin, play the cello, it's really pretty. And I said, okay. Um, <laughs> and so, yay, thanks mom. Uh, I, and I love, it's so interesting because whenever I was given an opportunity to have a melody, you know, when it wasn't just the umpas of Mozart or whatever, like I, I felt like my actual voice was able to be heard because it's, you know, it, it, the melody felt like it was so clear, like what, what the intention of what I'm quote unquote saying is so clear. And as a vocalist, nothing drives me more crazy than when I'm singing an aria or singing a song where the, the lyrics are on the nose, like where, or meaning like, I love you so much because you're so beautiful, whatever, like, right? Like, I, you know, it's, it's much more interesting. And this is why I love German writing so much because it's like the German and Austrian part of the world is allergic to um, anything being on the nose. Like when it comes to, you know, spoken, everything feels subtle. Everything feels sort of indicated. And, and they use, you know, the usage of, of imagery and the usage of, um, uh, you know, using nature and metaphor. how, right, metaphor, thank, thank you, yes, metaphor, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> brings out, you know, such interesting colors, and, and I, I say this all the time to people, but I really feel like if you are going to use words, you must have something to say, right, like, it, it has to be, if you cannot say it just by hearing a melody, if you cannot say it just by music, that's when you must have words, otherwise, you know, what's, why are you writing it? Why why are you saying it? Yeah, I mean that's yeah that's the sort of the heart of the whole. Um, I mean I think I think a, a lot of instrumentalists would argue that the second you put words to it, and the power of of language and using it directly or obliquely or whatever. I mean I'm just so I'm so happy to be both. I mean that's kind of at the heart of who I am as an artist and why I feel it. So we started this leg of the conversation because you mentioned that um, the, um, it must be very val uh, validating or, or enjoyable to enter into an ensemble, not just as a singer, but also as the guitar player. 
an event, and I can only say yes, absolutely. So, 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 so much so that I have very, very little interest left in standing in front of an ensemble as a singer, because being just just a singer sounds like a you know undervaluing the what's being done by a singer. Um, but to be, if if you're able to bring your brain up to that level, if you're able to to separate your your fingers and your voice and like get it all organized. Being a soloist as a singer and an integral part of the accompaniment that's that's you know throbbing and supporting the whole piece is I mean, to me as I uh, what I from all the things that I've experienced is is the most complete experience, most com fully satisfying that I've ever been able to achieve. That being said, you know I've never I've never stood in front of a hundred piece Wagner orchestra to sing on sing on you know to ride that wave so that must be pretty amazing too yeah but with Wagner too you are the instrument so much more I think than in anything else mm. that I've ever sung like with Wagner ba Wagner and Bach maybe hmm yeah well yeah I'll have to think about that hmm interesting I shouldn't think about it right now um <laughs> yeah with, but with Wagner right he it's so intense and also nuanced, by the way, like his language. I said, I said, I, I, I did. So I did Fricka recently. I made a recording of, of her reproach of Wotan and I'm reading through it and I have my translation and my German, which is, you know, okay. And I'm, and I'm reading this and I'm like, what the hell is she saying? I don't actually know. <laughs> like because it was mm. it was so nuanced and it was so well it was just so inside baseball. It was like you had to know every part of each piece of this story in order to recognize like oh she's talking about this affair he had and oh it's about that affair. You know it's like because it's all about affairs, right? And that he's you know he's slept with everybody and now they're going to sleep with each other and that's a problem. So and right but it was so interesting like to sing that and realize that it takes like every ounce of you just to be able to phonate and keep it in the pocket all the time. Like you, you can't, you can't actually do anything else. And that's often why I think people are staged in Wagner. And also because yep. often the singers can't, you know, they're, you know, they can't really move really easily. Back and back. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Like, <laughs> this legit, yeah, I this have one. nothing, I have nothing against that. I mean, I think when I, when I see somebody who is able to like achieve the uh, Olympian, you know, feat of just keeping the voice, uh, you know, in in position uh, with through that music and with with that kind of an accompaniment going through it. You know, I mean, in my opinion, I don't need you to move. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. need you to like. I don't need you to act. I mean, obviously, it's amazing if somebody can do both. But well, one thing that I find very interesting, Rachel, I mean, you and I maybe maybe we even mentioned this in our coffee session a while ago, is um, the difference between opera. Um, as art and opera as sport, mm. uh, to me is very, to very, very interesting. And uh, throughout the years, I have come to value both aspects of it equally. And actually, to be honest, the reason why I have, in for lack of a less arrogant term, bowed out of the opera world is because I just don't, I'm not interested in being the sportsman required of me. And making the the personal life sacrifices that are required, you know, in the same way they're required of, of an Olympian or or a, you know professional football player, to to be the requisite level of sportsman to be mm. a successful a successful working opera singer. Uh, I'm much I'm much more interested in um, indulging and and discovering um, the more creative aspects of who I am as an artist instead of keeping myself as a finely tuned instrument to still be able to perform opera. It's one of the most demanding things you can do with the human body, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yes. No, we talk about this. Elisa and I talk about this all the time. About op the opera is the Olympics of the voice. Very much so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, but I've never heard it said as opera opera as sport it's like all of a sudden I'm like oh all these ideas percolating in my and, brain <laughs> yeah and you have to keep it in shape it's true I, I mean even think about amazing singers who you know are in their prime and then you know 10 years later they don't sound like themselves anymore it's because they just didn't keep practicing you know and of course age plays a factor too there oh. but it, it is something that you have to train continuously and that like you're saying keeping the the instrument on point is one of the major thrusts. I mean, without that, you cannot actually sing opera. 
you can and make a fool of yourself. It became, <laughs> it, yeah, totally. It became clear to me through my own experience and even more importantly, through um, watching my ex-wife, who is uh, a tremendous, tremendous singer, um, a very, very high coloratura soprano with the sort of most delicate, you know, kind of kind of instrument. And the amount of sacrifices that I saw her have to make in her personal life just to be able to just to be able to keep the voice in the place where it needed to be uh, mm-hmm. to, fu- to function at its best. I personally, and I think this is something that's not talked about enough in conservatories and in when you're doing a vocal degree, I think it's super important for anyone who's interested in a career in singing to take a very eyes open, honest look at the requirements of such a profession and to ask yourself, am I really willing to make those kinds of sacrifices to try and make uh, a, a career in this profession uh, a reality. And obviously that's different for everybody. Like, Oh, totally. I don't actually, so I've recently become a mezzo, which we've talked about a little bit. And I'm like, hmm. wait, there's stereotypes with that, that I don't, I don't know that that's me. I don't think so. Oh, well, none of them are true. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> none of them true. I mean, it's like one out of 10 you meet and then you're like, ha you fit the stereotype. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Um, Anyway. Well, but it's true that that voice type is often cast. Like the baritones are always the bad guys. The tenors are always the heroes that get the women, right? right. And the well, the mezzos true, are always the true. the stereotypes kind of like the stereotypes are kind of a reaction to the fact that the repertoire doesn't evolve. <laughs> exactly. Yes. yes. And the people. Uh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. True. How do you guys feel about um about adding to that repertoire about about um opera as uh not just a collection of operas from you know monteverdi bis to monteverdi to britain but rather something that we're continuing to expand on does that seem does it feel like that's legitimately happening to you guys i think that there definitely are operas that are interesting but at the same time are making adjustments for the vocal abilities of people today who are not being trained in the way that you need to be trained in order to actually have a sustainable sound and also this is always my thing so I do a lot of work you know as a producer and and part of my producing you know when I'm when I find an idea that I'm really excited about working on with a composer I I want to get into you know, the why of things, like, why are we doing this? Like, why does this matter? And does it make sense? And so often I find that there are people whose melodies are just popping out of their brain and they just have to, you know, they have to write something, you know, they, they have, you know, these sort of sweeping orchestral uh, motifs in their minds and they just have to write something, but they write before they have a really, really good story. And, and that I, I suffer personally from that. Like, I don't, you know, I keep going back to this this aria that um, is from the Ballad of Baby Doe, and it's the so when I'm going through all my mezzo stuff, right? Um, one of the arias I looked at was Augusta. Um, uh-huh. I think it's Augusta. Why do you turn away? I think that's what it is. And I was reading this, and I was like, no, I can't, I can't do it. Like I can't do this because there is nothing interesting in here, and and uh-huh. so. The reason to me why these operas that are super old and whatever, you know, 400 years, there's something in them that keeps them valid. And what are the operas today that will be valid in 50, 100 years? Because I know that there are some, but it's not going to be that many, just you know, percentage-wise, right? How many percentage-wise, what are the operas that have maintained their interest and um kept you know kept their life over yeah but there's there's also another element to all of that i i I hear what you're saying i think you're right there's another element to that though is like being born in the right time like unfortunately the context no longer exists to be a celebrated opera composer you know it it, we're not going to have any more verdi's and and mozart's and rossini's and wagner's because the audience doesn't exist to put them on their shoulders and march them out of the theater in triumph. Literally, that whole that whole situation is done. Is no long is no longer in offer. Right. Um, and, and so, so how you can't like achieve the the halls of greatness in the way that those composers did because that 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 world doesn't exist anymore for yeah. them to be celebrated. It's like being born today with the. Um, with the great potential of discovering electricity. Like, oh, well, great. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
that's not a particularly helpful thing for you to think of, even though, you know, I'm sure you're very clever. Uh, that's not, that's not exactly like something we're going to get excited about. And mm. so with that, with that, with that in mind, it's like the people who are most exciting, truly, like the people who are, um, the Mozart's, the Rossini's, the Verdi's and Wagner's of today, why would, why would those people be attracted to opera? That may, would make no sense. Well, I mean, but why are uh, the people who want to sing it attracted to it? I mean, for me, you know, in a similar way, that's like... A I, that's a whole other issue. But like, well, is it, is it though? Conversation, in my I, opinion, I, yeah. I, feel, I feel like it, it stems from the same thing. Like, either it's in you or it's not. And I think... I think, that... if, I think if Verdi, I think if Verdi had born, if Verdi had been born fifty years later, chances of him being he could have being a filmmaker or something else are are, are so much higher. Mm -hmm. I mean, his 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 what he wanted to give and contribute to the world, I don't think was uh, he was he was he, he was not he doing towards... high art, is what you're saying. He was doing what was he no. used the medium. That I'm saying exactly, exactly. He used the medium of the time yeah. that was that was gonna that had its finger most firmly on the pulse of the people, right? Uh, to be able to to be able to really deliver something, and anyone who is a true genius today uh, would would be seriously misguided if they thought that opera was going to be the way they were going to make an impact on. He may think Rachel about Yusuf. He used to always say to me, "Why do you do opera? Don't you realize that you could use your talents in ways that are." so much more relevant. And of course he was in film. That was what he wanted to do was, and what he was doing was making film. Um, but yeah, and he just said, it's a completely old fashioned, like dead, basically dead art form. <laughs> and it's true. Again, I'll use the word regurgitation. Like there is a lot of that going on. Right. And of course we try to put our own stamp on it and we try to make it fresh in some way, even though we're doing this work that was written 300 years ago or whenever. Um, <clears throat> but okay. So, but when that I, being said, but and when, you guys probably, go ahead. yeah, go ahead. But when I go, okay, when I go to a museum, and I'll use this example. Okay, so I remember seeing the work of Rothko on a calendar. I, I probably told, I, I may have told both of you guys a story, but I'm going to say it again anyway. I remember seeing the work of Mark Rothko. And I was, mm -hmm. and my roommate had it on this calendar, and I was like, okay, I don't understand. Like, I don't get it. It's just a couple of colors on this, you know. I don't, I don't get it. And why is he famous? And what, what merits him to have a calendar? And I, and I remember, because you know, once you have a calendar, like, there's a reason. Like, people are buying this. Why? And I, I went to see a full exhibit of a bunch of Mark Rothko paintings at the east wing of the national gallery in dc and i walked in and i took a deep breath and i went and i and i i, I couldn't speak because i was so overwhelmed by the emotion that was in these life-size you know fully immersive okay. pieces of art and to me that's what that's what it offers like art in in any form when it's when it's the best and fullest of what it is and and i think wanting to have those kinds of experiences um is valid and wanting to offer them and wanting to experience them is valid now maybe it's a terrible example because you know these are pieces are finished they're done they are what they are and they're there and opera is something that has to be interpreted each time anew so maybe it's a terrible example but i just feel like if you can if if interpreting opera can be like that why why not keep doing it Oh no! I don't think I don't need any reason to keep doing it. It should be continued, absolutely. But you're saying I think it's. I, I think it's also my, it. my my point. My point is is that if I was born a Mozart today, I would not be attracted to opera as my vehicle of oh for sure of of, of creation. So I mean, that, think I mean, of Prince. That kind of right? has to be. That kind of has to be like. I feel like that has a place in the conversation in the sense that. Yeah, I mean, we're, there were uh, people who are engaged in that kind of music in, um, you know, are all, you don't want to feel like you're just putting on museum installations because there's something about it that really lives every time you perform it. You know, there's something about, there's something th that is uh, alive and actual in 2018 when you bring that music into the world, even though it was written 300 years ago or whenever, there's something that does feel very like, real about it and kind of but, magical right yeah 
But to me, that is because of the um, eternal aspects that it touches on. And those eternal aspects will continue to be um, relevant, just like um, Shakespeare and the architectural of European cathedrals and stuff like that. that that's never going to stop uh, touching a base note in humanity that is always going to be important. But what I'm, what I'm talking about is, um, you know, um, the, the geniuses, the, um, the great influential earth shattering creative minds of our time, um, are no longer busying themselves with opera. That's just something to be accepted, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I don't and know. That, <laughs> yeah, maybe I mean, so. I don't know. Maybe it, sound, maybe it sounds pessimistic, but I mean, I'm just saying, and actually, it's not even that relevant. Like, it doesn't, there's not, that doesn't need to necessarily affect the way we go about our work at all. It doesn't, it doesn't change anything. Um, hmm. It's just, uh, I mean, I think about that because I write music, because I, I make music and, and I have the opportunity. I see, I know both what it's like to um, enchant someone with a piece of music that's 400 years old, and I know what it's like to touch somebody with something that I wrote yesterday. And, I, right. and they both have a place in this world. They're both super, super, super important. Um, uh, but, you know, they're touching, they're touching, and they're, they're different kinds of magic. Yeah. Well, different kinds of magic. Yeah, magic, yeah. magic being yeah, the sort of the common yeah, what, there. <laughs> what, else, what else? What else do you call it? And so, but the, what I, I mean, why I love Vienna so much, and why I will continue to always have a home in this city, is because I don't know anywhere else where there are so many extremely highly trained classical musicians that are bored of playing classical music. Mm. Cool. And that, that, that's like a pool of, of only limited, you know, limitedly tapped potential that I find extremely exciting. Yeah. And it's all the people that play with the Earl Kings are pulled from that pool. And we have so much fun. And the mosaic uh, people, too. Because of that. Sure, yeah, they, they react, they're reacting to the exact same uh, paradigm. And, and you want to, um, but this is sort of bring it back to something we spoke about before, um, what's most exciting is the union between, you know, skill and creativity. Um, and even though Vienna is a very conservative musical city in a lot of ways, there's this just underbelly to it. That's just thrilling because you have all these extremely well-trained people, you know, who are like, who left the Vienna Philharmonic because they couldn't live that way anymore. And now they're trying to figure out something on their own and it's just the coolest thing. Yeah. Well, and there's an audience too, right? There's an audience of people who are also like, yeah, I've already seen this 17 times. I want to try something new. And so they come oh, with exactly. an education Similar. and an understanding and, and can also, and, and what, what a thrill it is to know that, that they are also excited about what you're doing. Like that's, a, that's a, that's a really nice reciprocal experience. It's one thing to perform for an audience where they've never heard this stuff and they're like, oh, that was nice. And another thing, yeah. you know, to perform it by someone who does know the background and, and, and sort of you're bringing them to a new place and the gratitude that they feel because of it. Well, they, and they get all the jokes. Yes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. That's the, that's the best that's, part that's of That's really it. what it's all about, right? <laughs> I, yeah. And I, so I had this moment. Okay. So I want to, I want to kind of ask you. Um, I had this moment where, with playing jazz ukulele where I decided maybe I can actually play opera on the ukulele and sing something opera. <laughs> well, it started out actually with Schubert, which is so weird. Now I'm talking to you and I'm like, okay, so maybe I can complete that project that I started. I sang actually with the harp. I sang at a, a girlfriend's wedding last summer and um, I did Du bist die Ruhe. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then I decided afterward, I was like, you know what? I could probably figure out how to pick a pattern, like do a picking pattern on the uke and do this as like, and that was my first sort of gesture toward crossover with my ukulele which I originally picked up and was playing jazz standards which I also love and um but I got a little bit uh, I think I just didn't know exactly how to do it and so I sort of sort of put that down but then I came back to it I had a my mentor from grad school actually had a birthday and said he wanted uh, me to play something on the uke for him and I said what and he said song to the moon and so I I was able to sort of 
Really? How do you can do I, that part? Can I, How do you can do I pause you? Can I pause you? Can I, yeah. can I pause you right there? Because I yeah. really need need to use the little boy's room. Me too. I'll be, I'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> okay. edit that part out. <laughs> Did everyone go to use the bathroom? Lisa, are you still there? Hello? Hi. Oh, you're back, but he's not back yet. Right. <laughs> okay. Did you have to go too? Did we all have to pee? Yes. <laughs> We're all stairs with our water bottles. That's right. Drinking, you know. Okay, I'm back. Awesome. We. I love okay. that we all had to pee, and I'm grateful that somebody said something. So I was like, oh man. Oh yeah. No, no, I'm. I'm not about abusing the kidneys at all. <laughs> um, so. And we yeah, should probably so, wrap up too soon. Sure. Soon anyway, no problem. But song yeah. to the I moon. did. I did work out "Song to the Moon" on the ukulele. Cool. And, awesome. And I did the little solo that I think you're t thinking of, Rachel. Yeah, that, that, and then they like, they like, you know, it's like the little water is yelling back at you, you know. Like, don't what? do it. The section oh, yeah. is where there, it's, you know, it's the warning section. Yeah. Yeah. I figured out how to do it all. And that kind of like, I loved it. It was great. And it actually took me several months to work it out to where I could do, I mean, you have to you know, build up the strength in your fingers to be able to do those little things and whatever. Um, so, uh, but then I never came back to the Schubert. And now that we're having this conversation, I'm like, I got to come back to the Schubert. So, so what do you do? Like, how do you, what do you find call it that? Is the, it transposing it? Or what do you call no, it? No, well, I call it um, an arrangement. A trans transposition is when you don't change any of the notes. Um, so for instance, give you an example, like the list there are list transcriptions of Beethoven symphonies where he literally just plays all the same notes <gasps> in piano. And then, yeah, all, he did all the symphonies. Okay, um, so that's transcribing. And then Transpose is like going from one key to another. That's transposing, not transcription. Yeah, that's right. what I'm saying. Because that's what I said originally was trans transposing. But that, right, transposing is just changing the key. Yeah, yeah okay. transcription, you do a Transcription is note for note okay. when you keep everything the same, but you put it on a different instrument or ensemble. For those in the audience who would like to know, yes. Arrange, arranging is when you interpret the piece so you don't necessarily keep the voicings the same. You can add stuff if you want, actually. I mean, so the Schubert, the Schubert, um, they're actually often called transcriptions, but really they're arrangements. The list, they're list arrangements of Schubert songs where he does them. Uh, like with solo embellishments and stuff like that. Oh. Anyway, anyway, so to me, it's the one of the most enjoyable creative processes that I engage in is sitting down with a song, like yes. a Schubert song or Schumann or something, and going through with my instrument and um, uh, uh, allowing Making it work for the allow, yeah. I would say allowing the limitations of not only the instrument itself, but of my ability on the instrument to sort of funnel the interpretation in a particular manageable direction uh, and I think one of the keys to the sort of success of the Earl Kings and the reason why nothing that I play on the guitar feels awkward in a Schubert song is because I don't play anything on the guitar that doesn't feel like it belongs on the guitar mm. whereas there's a lot of people that play Schubert on the guitar and really they break their fingers trying to play piano on the guitar yeah that's another thing I think to remember and to to sort of this sort of ties it back to what we we're talking about earlier. It's like knowing knowing your limitations and that limitations aren't necessarily a bad thing. It's meant to be something that helps you find your way through. Yeah, I find right? them super 
super creative actually i mean i i celebrate i celebrate my limitations as um sort of uh things that foster creativity sacred boundaries <laughs> yeah yeah and obviously it's important to continue to rediscover them you know they're not set in stone like mm. we just did we just did Liba, for instance and a couple of years ago i never would have thought that was possible i mean mm. the amount of the um the amount that I had to up my guitar playing game and the amount that we as an ensemble had to up our game, like what happens in six minutes in a Schubert song happens in 30 seconds in a Schumann song. Yeah. Wow. You know, like the amount of like, you know, 180 degree changes in, a, in a emotion and harmonies and stuff like that. Um, so a lot of those limitations that had been guiding us through Schubert songs were completely like uh, dissolved and we moved into a new place of, uh, you know, uh, ability and creativity. Um, so it's both, yeah. It's, it's respecting the limitations, working with them, but then also allowing them to uh, go away and move to the next level of stuff. But anyway, so you with your ukulele, I think that's super cool. I think it's super cool that you can say jazz ukulele with a straight face. I would have to practice that. <laughs> hey, you haven't heard it yet. Look me up, man. You'll hear it. It's awesome. It sounds good. I completely, I completely believe you, and I'm super excited to hear it. Um, <laughs> now, I have a little bit of a thing with the ukulele because I play mandolin with Divan de Fugren in my folk band, huh? and I don't, I don't think we've played a single concert yet where somebody didn't come up to me and said they really liked my ukulele. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Which bothers me deeply. Yeah. But, but it's okay. It's actually it's not your fault, so... No, it's not. I know exactly what no, a mandolin is, and I like them a lot. And they are nothing like the ukulele. They don't look anything like. I mean, maybe they're like, well, it's not a guitar, so it must be. It's just be that little ukulele. baby guitar. It's, it's just that little, little baby guitar. Isn't it there. funny? It always goes to a southern hey. accent. I don't know why. Yeah. Wow. Hey, <laughs> thanks for um, thanks for this. It's really fun. Yeah. And, thanks uh, for inviting me. I'm so sorry that I was late, but hopefully we made hey, up man, for it. We're fine. We totally did. It's fine. It was awesome. It was great. Yeah. No. Thank this will you be so great. much. No, Brian, you're awesome. This is really really fun.